It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to the third edition of The Political Party, recorded live at the beautiful St. James's Theatre in London. This episode features former Home Secretary and Education Secretary Charles Clark, a man who'd been at the heart of the Blair era. He'd also been Neil Kinnock's Chief of Staff as well, so had a unique view of Labour in opposition and then going into government. He's a very thoughtful and considered man, and as you'll be able to hear for yourself, he's candid and charming as well. Good evening, everyone. Hello. Hello and welcome to the St. James Theatre to the Political Party. I'm Matt Ford. I take it you all watch Prime Minister's Question Time this afternoon? Yeah. Four people at a gig like this. No wonder no one else is voting. Cry. Crikey. Well, what we did at the start... Did it, by the way, has anyone been here before? Yeah, yeah. yeah one person. A <laughs> couple of people. Uh, give me a cheer if this is your first time at the show. Yeah. All right, quite a few newcomers. Welcome newcomers. Well, what I'd like to do at the start, just to get people into things... Uh, is recreate Prime Minister's Question Time. Come on, mate. Enter into the spirit of it. <laughs> recreate Prime Minister's Question I'm a big fan of it, and I like the atmosphere that you get in there. So what, what I'll do, I'll divide the room crudely. If anyone, everyone on this side of that line, if you could be my supporters. So what you would do is rudimentary Prime Minister's Question Time etiquette. After something I'd say, you'd just go, yeah, 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 like that. I'll tell you what, everyone can try that if you like. I'll just make it some, I'll say something we can all agree with. And that's why I think no one should have to work on Saturdays. Yeah. Exciting, isn't it? <laughs> Feels good. Feels good being an MP. Now, everyone this side of the line, you guys are against me. Just for the purposes of this exercise, not forever. <laughs> so I'll say something. And while I'm saying it, if you guys can cheer me while I'm saying it, and you guys boo me. And just do, do you know how parliament, you know, parliamentary heckles work? It's just people going, no, 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 rubbish. <laughs> just in general. Uh, I tried this out at a gig the other night, and some bloke at the back just went, twat. I said, mate, <laughs> it's not parliamentary language for starters. It's quite rude. So we'll try that out. I'll say something. You guys back me up, and you guys just heckle and generally barrack. Okay? And that's why, uh, Mr. Speaker, I think, uh, in, in fact, it is those of us on this benches uh, that care about the NHS. Yeah. yeah. And the party opposite that will tear it to pieces. Uh, good, isn't it? Isn't that good, enjoyable fun? Uh, one of my favourite things about Prime Minister's Question Time is John Burko. You got Burko fans in? <laughs> I really like John Burko. I think he's cool. Uh, but what he likes to do is, he likes to get particularly annoyed, it seems, with Tory MPs. I don't know if people have noticed this. It seems a bit unfair, given that he is one. He likes to get annoyed at Tory MPs. And what he'll do, he'll pick on one in particular and a job that they once had and use it as a way to put them down. So we'll try that again. You guys have really got a barrack me loud this time, big time. And I'll do a Burko on one if you're all right. So we'll say, uh, uh, and Mr Speaker, uh, that's why it's this party that believes uh, in law and order and the party opposite, frankly, that would like... Order, 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 order. I say to the Minister for Policing... His behaviour would see him arrested in any town and city centre on a Saturday night. Order! Must be heard. He's cool, isn't he? 
No, but I think I'm the only one who likes John Burke. We're <laughs> the only person in politics. Now, Lib Dems in the house, give me a cheer. <laughs> no, there's got to be one of them here. No Lib Dems in. Not a single one. Is to a shame. To a shame. No, they won the Eastley by-elections. I was going to congratulate them. No? Any UKIP in? <laughs> yes! Still celebrating. Hello, was that the lady at the back? Hello. What's your name, madam? Susie. Nice to meet you, Susie. Did you campaign in Eastleigh? I don't think that's how politics works. <laughs> Was not 24-hour rolling news coverage enough? I've got no idea what's going on in Eastleigh. I can't get reception in here, but everyone seems to think there's a by-election on. Su <laughs> this sounds like a private matter between you and Nigel Farage. One that I would like to know more about later. Incredible. But well done for coming second. It seems a bit skank, doesn't it? The Lib Dems won it, and everyone talked about it. the UKIP. And you are the only UKIP person in tonight, man. Of course, now, uh, since the last show, Chris Hoon's gone to prison. Yeah. <laughs> it still feels bad cheering about it, doesn't it? No one else feels slightly bad that he's sitting there. He's in jail now. You're all sat here drinking. Chris Hoon, right this minute, is in a cell. <laughs> in a maximum security prison. Makes you proud to be British, doesn't it? Incredible. I'll tell you what, one phrase Chris Hoon has got to get used to is this. Uh, Mr. Hoon, we've got another visitor for you. Who is it? That's uh, Mr. Clegg. Uh, Mr. Nick Clegg. Again? If I was Nick Clegg, I'd visit him every week. Oh, calamity Clegg. And what I would do if I was Nick Clegg, I'd wind him up. I'd go down there, slip him a cake, give him a little wink, walk off. In the hope that he'd think there were keys or escape methods in it. Absolutely nothing. Chris, I uh, baked you a cake. Slip him a paper clip. If I was him as well, because at maximum security prisons they have to do the phone thing, don't they, in the glass. If I was Nick Clegg, I would milk that so much. You only ever did talk to me on the phone, Chris. How ironic. <laughs> Properly fucking doing. Do people feel sorry for Chris Hoon? No. I'm thinking of writing a play about it for the West End uh, called The Shawshank Libdemption. <laughs> in which it charts Chris Hoon's travel through the prison system. I'll never forget the first time I laid eyes on Chris Hoon. <laughs> Tall drink of water. <laughs> the various classic scenes, of course, where Chris Hoon gets the uh, screws on side by helping them out with their parking tickets. And then a seminal moment where they're tarring the roof during the summer and he asks one of the prison's guards, do you trust your wife? And he says, isn't that what you're in for, mate? <laughs> be amazing, wouldn't it, Chris Hoon? I mean, I feel... The presumption is, of course, that he'll get out. People are saying, oh, he's got eight months to be out in four on good behaviour. Can you really presume that? I mean, I know he can't speed in prison. <laughs> but what if he goes apeshit? Some people go mad in prison. You read about it on the news. What if, what if Chris Hoon loses it and he's like Bronson? He's just in there for 20 years. <laughs> Chris Hoon still hasn't been let out. Susie going, well, no one's emailed me about it, so I presume he's still inside. <laughs> Imagine that, imagine turning on Sky News. Chris Hoon has had his sentence dramatically increased tonight for assaulting a nonce on B-Wing. <laughs> incredible, wasn't it? Poor old Chris Hoon. Joe Swinton as well. Did anyone see any of the Lib Dem spring conference this month, this week? Not a single person. 
watched it. I watched it because I'm interested in this sort of thing. Now, Lord Renard, of course, has been all over the papers and that's been a major problem for them. Joe Swinson apologised to her party for it. Did anyone see her apologise? It was the shittest apology I've ever seen. And I will recreate it for you now. Now, Joe Swinson isn't, I think it's fair to say, the best politician in the country. <laughs> or the most well-known, <laughs> judging by this reaction. But she, um, she did this awful thing, Joe Swinson, when she did this. So she stood there, looking very serious. She's about to give a speech to the Lib Dem Spring Conference, very big gig. And she goes up there, she went, um, awful politician's apology. She went, many of you have been shocked and saddened at the revelations you've heard on Channel 4 News. And although I've had numerous invitations to talk to the media about this conference, I wanted to talk to you directly. <laughs> nah, mate. Nah. That is not what the... She walked out from behind the lectern like a supply teacher. What are you doing? Now, I know you guys are used to Nick talking through stuff like this, and I know it's a bit awkward, but I, what I just want to say to you all is that I respect you all as people, and I just want us to talk, because it's never okay to be touched, okay? I just want you to all know that we take this very seriously. The fuck are you doing apologising? I mean, the thing is, it was such a rehearsed apology. Like, it's like she said to her advisors, yeah, I know, but listen... People need to really believe what I'm saying. What Pillock said, maybe she should just move to the side a bit. <laughs> but when was that ever? The best way to look sincere was to remove you. Don't have the lectern in the first place. Come out. The best way surely would have been just to come out and say, uh, look, um, what's happened is very serious. Uh, the part I played in it, I regret. I wish we'd have taken it more seriously. I hope we can draw a line down the matter. If anyone needs to be brought to justice, we'll help you please do it. That would have been far more effective than going, I actually spoke to Danny Alexander about the issues. Great. <laughs> what did Beaker have to say about it? <laughs> Doesn't fill me with any confidence whatsoever. You can't apologise like that. What if things in the Lib Dem party escalate and Joe Swinson's there next year? Conference. When I heard about the murder, <laughs> I was shocked and concerned. And when I found out it was myself that had committed it, I immediately reported myself <laughs> to the relevant authorities and, of course, Danny Alexander. I can assure you, I will never stoop that low again. Like, it's just such a bizarre... Who says, like, shocked and... It's almost as if, though, it was so rehearsed that she'd gone, hold on, should I... <laughs> First of all, how did I get so posh? <laughs> hold on, would I, be, would I be shocked and concerned or concerned and shocked? There must be advisors that deal with stuff like that. Well, I suppose you'd be shocked first, wouldn't you? Let's recreate it. Joe. Apparently Chris Renard's a bit of a pervert. <gasps> oh, there you go. You're shocked first. <laughs> now, how do you feel? Well, I suppose I'm... I mean, I'm slightly concerned that... <laughs> anybody didn't a beat You wouldn't be concerned and then shocked, would you, Joe? I imagine her advice. No, 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 but Joe, you wouldn't be concerned and shocked. Why not? Well, think about it. Why would you go... I'm very concerned about... <gasps> oh, my God! <laughs> the horrors just dawned on me. It has to be shocked and concerned. It's the only way the public will understand what's going on. Actually, I'm sure, because it was so... If she'd have done it more coolly... I mean, to be fair to her, she has to handle it with a certain amount of a politician's touch. You can't have her coming out and really telling it like it is. 
All right, let's have it right. Chris was Randy. <laughs> Randy is all well. He loved a bit of it. All right, let's draw a line underneath it, okay? I mean, Chris, he liked three things. Tits, arses and by-elections. <laughs> Good old Chris. Nick Clegg, did anyone see his performance? Awful, as usual. That awful way that he talks. Putting in pauses to sound as if though it's made up on the spot. <laughs> or even of any consequence. Hate the way he speaks. I can't... Of all the things that he's done, I don't give a shit about his policies. Talk normally, man. I hate the way he's... He told this awful joke where he went... <laughs> this is a joke he told. You know, the Tory party, they're like a, a shopping trolley. Try and push them forward, but they sort of veer off to the right. <laughs> Meh. You try that on a Saturday night, mate. See how far it gets you. And by the way, if the Tory party are a shopping trolley, you're the pillock sat in the baby seat, so don't start squawking. <laughs> it's not a steering wheel, Nick. It's a frisbee. You're making a fucking idiot out of yourself. What a chump. I'm surprised no one watched it. I mean, I... And if the Tory party is like a shopping trolley, then the Lib Dems are a bag for life. <laughs> All they're good for is the environment, and you always forget them. <laughs> uh, Theresa Coffey as well. I don't know if people are aware of Theresa Coffey. She's, uh, she's a Conservative MP. She recently said that the Tory party needs to undergo sexism training much in the way that corporate giants Microsoft and Google have, you know, when you have training days, diversity, inequality, all that sort of thing. She said the Tories actually need to go on sexism training, such as their dire attitude towards women. Now, this obviously shocks most people, and most people think, crikey, you know, if a political party that's in power in this country needs to be trained to know what women are, <laughs> we should probably be concerned. I share that concern, but I have to admit, the notion of them having to go on sexism training makes me think of the Tory party, not as sort of like nasty, sexist, boorish men, but almost like sort of 19th century cads. <laughs> well, I never. <laughs> that sort of thing. I just imagine the sexism training. I would love to go and watch that. Okay, uh, if you could all file in, please, gentlemen. Um, do take a pen. Uh, we will be doing a comments form, but we can do that later. Um, okay, uh, it sounds as if though we're going to have to do the basics today, guys, okay? Let me remind you, there are no wrong answers, okay? So don't, don't be backward in coming forward. No wrong answers. <laughs> Rule number one, okay? Let's just do the basics. Where is it not okay to touch a female member of staff? And I just imagine them going, <laughs> well, in the lobby. I mean, everyone can see. <laughs> I much prefer a darkened office. <laughs> don't you? And I know it's that, it just sounds like this. That makes, that's the sort of scene I imagine. Okay, right. Let's do another basic. What would you say to a female member of staff or colleague that had been inappropriately touched in the workplace? Lucky girl. <laughs> Chance to be a fine thing. Who did it and where? I'll wait there at the same time tomorrow. Hmm. Just imagine, I can't imagine men like that. I mean, that isn't what the Tory party's like, obviously. But men like that going to a training session and getting out of the out of it. I just imagine them losing their rag after through it. Oh, come off it. Look, if the Lord didn't want boobs to be touched, he'd have made them out of thistles. <laughs> and he didn't. So there we are. 
be honest, you could say anything in that voice. <laughs> anything sounds dirty. You could talk about en- energy policy. I mean, I think what we need, between you and I, is a sustainable energy source. <laughs> I don't know where on earth you'd find one. <laughs> it's just me being mucky, basically, isn't it? Now, I've invited a lot of politicians. I've got Charles Clark on tonight, the former Home Secretary, very excited about. I've invited a lot of politicians down here uh, to this night. Last month we had Nigel Farage. The first month we had uh, George Galloway. And uh, we've got Jack Straw coming up in June. I've approached a lot of politicians from all different parties because I find all of them fascinating. And uh, I invited, I'm a big fan of Dennis Skinner. Now, uh, fans of Dennis Skinner in? A few. Um, I was a massive fan of him. Uh, I invited him on. I wrote to him when I was 10 years old, Dennis Skinner. First, one of the first people I ever wrote to. Him and Stuart Pearce. And uh, <laughs> I invited Stuart Pearce to my seventh birthday party. I didn't invite Dennis Skinner to my birthday party. That would have been crikey. Uh, one, heck of a, <laughs> one heck of a birthday party. But I, I invited Dennis Skinner to come down, to come on the show. And um, I left an email with him. And I chased him at his commons office. And I didn't want to be pushy. You know, he's 81 years old. You don't want to sort of harass people. And when you're trying to get politicians to come to a night that includes stand-up comedy, some of them, of course, necessarily are a little bit wary of it. So I thought, Dennis is going to be up for it. And I'd heard through another MP that he was, he was up for doing it. So I'd left messages. And then last week, I got a phone call uh, on my landline. And I answered the phone. I said, hello. And this bloke went, who's that? <laughs> Says Matt Ford, who's that? Dennis Skinner. I said, oh, Dennis, uh, oh, God, thank you, thank you for... Now, I just got off the treadmill, and I was wearing Nottingham Forest goalkeeper shorts and a Union Jack vest. <laughs> Luckily, it was over the phone. Anyway, so uh, <laughs> I said, oh, Dennis, thank you so much for, for... So you do comedy, do you? Yeah? Well, I've never heard of you. <laughs> join the queue, mate. Don't, don't worry about it. He said, uh, what sort of comedy do you do? I said, do impressions. Who do you do? So, t- Tony Blair, will you make? Oh. You like those sort of people, do you? I said, whoa, 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 no, no, no. I'm just, I can just do their voice. I used to sing, you know. I said, oh, great. I said, uh, what, what sort of stuff do you sing? <laughs> I used to sing wartime songs uh, for during the, you know, after the war. Lots of great wartime singers. Now, he named singers. Well, I've heard of Johnny Cash and Kenny Rogers and people like that. Patsy Klein, he named me singers I've never heard of. I can't remember the name of but for argument's sake, he I used to sing a lot of songs by Eva Rustgard. Eva Rustgard? You've never heard of Eva Rustgard? I said, no, she used to sing great songs. And then he started to sing to me. Now, I can't remember the song, but it's like wartime, so it's stuff like, we'll eat jam tomorrow when the toast comes down the line. I don't know what the fuck is hell they were singing about rationing or some shit so I was there going and I thought I'd build a bridge here I went oh Dennis there's a piano at the venue I can play a piano we could do a duet no that's right. fine now at this point I thought I'm not sure this is going that well <laughs> and then he goes out of nowhere Siri is a mess I said yeah <laughs> I thought, I'm not sure I can give any right answers and I wasn't sure like, if he'd research me or like, Google me or have me Twitter feed. Basically, you know, I'm a Blair, right? I support the Iraq war. So I thought, is it going towards this or not? And he went, I said, yeah, Syria. They want to arm the rebels, you know. I said, that's very difficult, isn't it? Because obviously, you know, Assad's 
Not very nice. And, uh, you know, but you don't want to arm the wrong rebels. You don't want to end up in a situation like we did with Hussein and bin Laden when you're fighting these people and trying to remove them in 20 years' time. Iraq's a bloody mess. Yeah, yeah, it is, yeah. I thought that would sort of, you know, the fact that we agreed on that would sort of bring him round. Iraq's a bloody mess. I said, yeah, it is, yeah. What do you make of that then? I said, well, I agreed with the removal of Saddam Hussein. What? Literally that lad. I said, what? I have never heard anyone now, 10 years later, actually agree with it. I thought, you must sit next to at least 150 people (laughs) that voted for it. And at this point, I was thinking, what, he's 81? I don't know whether he's had a drink or what, or whether he's just... I don't know. So I feel bad telling you, because he's an old guy, isn't he? But he was very, very... And there's a bit where I'm there, sort of sweating in this vest, sort of going, oh, Dennis, you know, maybe... The fact that we disagree is interesting. You know, this would be good on stage. Oh, no. You will never meet me. I thought, oh. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> so, I'm to so, so now he knows he's got the power of it. He knows I'm trying to convince him to come to this thing. You will never meet me. I said, right. And then he's going, um, says I'm the only person he's ever spoken to who agrees with that. Well, he went, this was the bit. This was the earth. I mean, I understand people disagree with me on Iraq and disagree with Blair and everything else. This was the, the tone with which he said this shocked me. I suppose you think. We should get rid of Robert Mugabe. <laughs> yeah, I do, actually. Yeah, yeah. That, that doesn't sound that outrageous to me, Dennis. Well, you know what? You'd have had Nelson Mandela killed. I said, no. <laughs> no, whoa, 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 whoa. And at this point, I thought, I've got I don't know whether he was recording this. I mean, to be honest, at this point, I thought, is this one of those prank calls? No, those ones that used to have in the back of, like, FHM, like, you've got my daughter pregnant, irate cab driver... Labour MP from the 80s. <laughs> what the fuck? You know, and I can't swear at him, can I? Because he's like, I'm obviously trying to get him on. And he's an old bloke. Do you know what I mean? I've got to have a certain amount of respect for a man that has rang me up and started bawling me out. Well, by your edict, you'd have had Nelson Mandela killed. I said, no, no, because he was revolting against the tyrannical regime. I'd have been on his side. Well, you sound like you like war. <laughs> I said, no. Dennis, I honestly don't like war. You sound very forceful. And I almost said, what? Coming from you? You sound very forceful. And then he said, you know what you sound like? I said, no. He went, a bloody Tory. I said, I'm not a Tory. I didn't say you were a Tory. I said, you bloody sounded like one. <laughs> it's all right, you got me there, mate. And it's sort of, this conversation, there, at that point, I was like, well, look, um, we're not going to agree on this, so... But, you know, maybe we could talk. Where are you from? I said Nottingham. Right, okay. Who do you know there? <laughs> Fucking shitloads of people. <laughs> Alphabetically. I was like, oh, and name drops good MPs. You know, I said, oh, well, I know Paddy Tippin and Vernon Co. They're good men. As if to say, how have they bred you? <laughs> I was like, he must have, surely, I, I think the whole thing must have been a wind-up. And then it, it, got to the, it got to the point <laughs> where... Everything I said, it didn't matter what. Like, even when I was saying, but come on, Dennis, you know, you can't have liked Saddam Hussein. War is horrible. I said, yeah, that's why I want to remove warmongers. You know, da, 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 da. And he got to the point where he's just having such a go at me, I thought the next thing he was going to say was, I'm outside. <laughs> I can see you, you little get. Wearing that Tory bloody vest. I mean, I didn't know what to say. It got to the point where we were on the phone for an hour and I'm trying to convince him of all these things. Just saying, oh, Dennis, it'd be interesting, you know, to have you down here in front of an audience and, and talk about these things. It was just running away with me. And it just ended with him going, you will never, ever meet me. <laughs> so, wait, you've 
read this clear. I feel really sort of like that you're really drilling this in. I thought, I don't know whether I need to change my landline number to stop Roy Hattersley ringing up next and giving me a load of shit. It was awful. Um, but there we are. Now, uh, in honour of Dennis, well, this is, this is uh, uh, perhaps a little treat. Um, well, how do I, how do I put this? Uh, I built a few bridges uh, since that phone call. And um, I thought it'd be a nice way to end the first section. I spoke to him yesterday. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, singing tonight, for your pleasure, please raise the roof for Mr. Dennis Skinner. Ah, of course he's not coming. <laughs> I just think I'm bloody stupid. If only you did, imagine that. Dennis Skinner singing, sings the classics. Dennis Skinner sings Adele Oasis. <laughs> Don't you look back in bloody anger. That's my job, you bastard. <laughs> well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I feel like we're sufficiently warmed up. We shall take uh, a quick break now. Quick break of about uh, 15 minutes. Have a few beers. Have a glass of wine. And we'll be joining the second half by former Education Secretary... Former Home Secretary, Charles Clark. Until then, I've been Matt Ford. Have a good break. See you in a bit. Thank you very much. Welcome back. Welcome back to the second half. Uh, very exciting it is as well. Uh, now, I should say, if you have questions you would like to ask, about towards the end, we'll do about 45 minutes to an hour. Towards the end, I will come to the audience. So if there's anything you would like to ask Charles Clark, please clearly indicate. Don't be backward in coming forward because if I don't see any hands up I'm likely to move on so have a think now if there's anything you'd like to ask him perhaps based on some of the answers he gives to some of the questions I ask him but please you know, it's a respectful arena so don't feel awkward about asking a question and speak loudly and clearly and we'll crack on uh, well folks we've had George Galloway Nigel Farage of course tonight we have someone who's actually held high office who's been right at the centre of uh, the greatest government this country has ever seen hey. <laughs> You reds. <laughs> of course, I won't be too partial, of course, but uh, it gives me a great honour to uh, introduce a man who's not only Education Secretary, but, of course, famously Home Secretary as well. Ladies and gentlemen, please show your appreciation for Mr Charles Clark. Hi, Matt. Thanks Welcome. for inviting me. Thanks for coming along. Now, Didn't know it would be Nigel Farage and... Uh... George Galloway. Might have thought again if you told me that in the email. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, it's interesting we talk about Nigel Farage because the, the tradition here is that uh, each guest provides a question for the next one. So it was, it was Nigel Farage that provided me with... Well, he provided me with two questions, if that's OK. Uh, the first one, he said, uh, Charles, can you please smile a bit more because you're too sodding serious? <laughs> That was his first one. Uh, well, I've just tried to smile then. Did you notice? <laughs> I was just trying to smile a bit. Uh, and, uh, well, he should look less kind of slick. <laughs> <laughs> and his, his second question was, how can you justify the change of population that has changed in Norwich since 2004? And how can you justify to so many working class people in Norwich that they haven't got jobs? I think Nigel Farage, a man I respect immensely... Uh, is, uh, hasn't, 
hasn't studied the employment statistics in Norwich, where he'll find our employment record is better than most of the country, where we welcomed the A8 migrants uh, from Poland and elsewhere. We've got Polish shops and so on, but worked fully with our economy in a good way, uh, which is actually interested in relations with the European Union. Our trade, our business depends on good relations with the European Union. And if you say, let's get out of it, like Mr Farage says... People don't want it. Well, his view was, uh, I think the word he used was ghettoised. Um, ghettoised? Was that the, the sort of whole area from London to East Anglia, had, uh, significant social problems, he said, and white working class people find themselves out of work because of the influx, because of uh, membership of the EU. Completely wrong. I mean, there's lots, of issues about, there's lots of issues about membership of the EU. I'm a pro-EU person, and I certainly agree there's lots of issues to be addressed. But the idea that we are somehow being ghettoised, I have no larger authority than the Bishop of Norwich on this question. He said to me just a couple of years ago, lots of Portuguese people came in to work for Bernard Matthews, which did, and they came from through the EU working for Bernard Matthews. Uh, there was even an issue during the European Cup final competition of a pub in a village in, uh, in, in Norfolk where there's a fight between the Portuguese and everybody else. But actually the story of even a very white area, and Norfolk is, by the way, very white, it's one of the whitest parts of the country, very inward-looking, has been to welcome people coming through. And that is the end of the day, that is the true story of what's happened. And uh, Farage, I honestly think Farage hasn't looked at it. Essex might be different. <laughs> when you talk about uh, membership of the EU and the, the issues around it, obviously... We may well have a referendum on our membership of the EU if the Tories win the next general election, even if they don't. Where do you stand on that? Do you think we should remain as members? 100%. I'm very strongly of the belief we should be members. I think we've lost time and time again by being behind the curve. I'm one of the very few people in Britain, uh, certainly in the Labour Party but elsewhere, who thinks we should have joined the Euro at the end of the uh, last century, 1999-2000. Do you still think it would have been the right decision? 100%. I completely think that. I think that we would have had a much more stable state of affairs. If you look at the banking stuff that's going on at the moment, we're opting out of the whole situation. About regu- I think we should be regulating the banks more, and I don't understand why we're so opposed to the EU regulation of the banks. When bank- the EU passes something on bankers' bonuses, I'm not saying that's terrible. I'm saying actually that's something we should do. But obviously the government you were a member of deregulated the city, and was yeah. single-minded in making it a, a cash cow ready for the economy, and you Correct. could argue that... Uh, I think Alistair Darling said that a quarter of our total tax take that helped fund public services came from the financial services industry. So you were a member of a government, actually, that that helped create the the conditions that led to the economic crash. I was, and it's, uh, I think, and Alistair has said it himself, Gordon has said it, others have said it, we were too uncaring of the need to regulate the financial services. In Norwich, you'd probably be surprised to hear... But Norwich South, which I used to represent, has the highest proportion of people working in financial services of any constituency in Britain. You'd be very surprised to hear that. Yeah. It's mainly uh, Aviva, Nor- what was Norwich Union, Marsh, other companies. Actually, all what I'd call good financial services, i.e. they were providing insurance and all the rest of it. You sure they're all real people or just Paul Whitehouse doing loads of impressions? They were real people. But actually, the, uh, the, there's lots of people to worry about on the impressions front of Norwich. <laughs> I do agree with you. Uh, but no, they're real people. In terms of your career then, you, you first started working in, in terms of politics. We worked for Neil Kinnock for many years, for about 10 years, first as a researcher and then as his chief of staff. And that period during which Neil Kinnock was leader was obviously tumultuous and people remember the conference in 85 and the, the standoffs of Militant. How serious was it behind the scenes? Because, you know, I read things and I hear things from other Labour MPs that there were, you know, that things got physical and that people were physically getting beat up over what side of the fence they were on. It was very tough. I mean, it was very tough. And 
particularly in that deputy leadership election in 1981, uh, where Tony Benn was against Dennis Healy, it was a very, very sharp and physical situation. And it was very difficult to say, let's face up to where we are now. We had to do three things. What was the policy of the party? Whole string of issues, unilateral nuclear disarmament, owning council houses, position in the EU, and so on. We had to deal with the organisation of the party. That was the militant issue in Liverpool, but also other issues. And we had to deal with how we presented ourselves, which was the Red Rose and so on. But these were all struggles. Uh, your friend, uh, I think your good friend, if I'm right, Dennis Skinner, <laughs> uh, wasn't, uh, 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 wasn't, wasn't always on the right side of these conversations, I've got to say. And it's, there's a funny illusion that it was kind of, we didn't divide. Division was dangerous uh, because actually division was wh what that era is around. We had hard, difficult, problematic votes about hard, difficult, problematic questions. The ones I've mentioned, the closed shop as well and so on. And it, why was it? Because we knew, we knew that at the end of the day we had to present ourselves to the British electorate and be able to say we were a party that could deal with the issues now rather than how things were in 1946. And that was a core, core issue. And I think one of the problems of today is how can we have that discussion in the party uh, without causing such unpleasantness and division that you end up in a position where the whole party is discredited. And that's a big issue. We'll come on to that. Just talking about Ben and Healy in 1981. Tony Ben has taken on almost the unofficial mantle of, of national treasurer and he's been canonised and people see him as a... Uh, as a consequence a of old age. <laughs> 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 but, I, you know, I, I've never been a fan of him, but I talk to people of my generation that think that, you know, he's just this lovely, kind old fellow. They totally forget how aggressive he was in the 80s, how divisive a figure he was, the problems that he caused. I mean, when you think of Tony Ben, how do you characterise him? Total bastard. <laughs> <laughs> uh, basically, <laughs> I mean... Every, every, everybody becomes a national treasure if they get old enough. <laughs> Even you, Matt. You're going to be a national treasure at some point. Um, some, some people have said to me, when I told people I was coming here tonight, they said, actually, he's a national treasure now. And I said, well, watch it, because if you're a national treasure now, where's it going to be? No, joking aside, it's, um, Tony was the most brilliant, brilliant, brilliant orator and arguer that I've ever met. Seeing him during that lead deputy leadership election, then, or he could wow any audience of any type. My father was a civil servant working for him at the, when he was Secretary of State for Trade and Industry. And he could go to a group of businessmen and really talk in the most possessive, possessing way. He did that within the party. And he was absolutely persuasive. But at core, I fundamentally believe he was interested in himself rather than the interest of the Labour Party. That's why he gave my rather sharp answer uh, <laughs> earlier on. Now, everybody to an extent, all politicians are vain. Uh, so I shouldn't say all, not me, obviously, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, most, most politicians are vain. And that's always a part of politics. It's always going to be there. You'll never uh, avoid it. Um, Nigel Farage obviously isn't. Uh, George Galloway obviously isn't. But, uh, yeah, I'm, not, I'm not saying you're one. But, 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 but actually, it's a real thing. And he, is, he was vain. But he was ready to sacrifice the interests of Labour, deeply dishonestly. Funny enough, last night I was, I'd videoed at home the films about Harold Wilson on the 50th anniversary of the election of the leader of the Labour Party. Channel 4 had an evening yeah, about that. it. And I was watching some of the ones I'd videoed. And they were talking about Tony Benn and Wilson's uh, attitude to Benn at that time. The idea he'd been part of the government, which he had, and then sought to say he was nothing, it was nothing to do with him, was just dishonourable to a a major, major degree. But the power of his, I won't say even rhetoric, uh, the fluency with which he spoke was I've never seen anybody like it ever. 
It's interesting when you talk to people about that era in Labour Party history that was certainly the most significant in terms of the change the party had to go through, is that people like yourself on the Kinnock sort of new Labour end said the party had to change and that the people who were holding the party back were being selfish. People on the other side of the fence, those to the left of you perhaps, say that it was a hijack, that actually you were forcing the party to change out of your own vanity. I mean, is there any way that had Labour not changed and maybe not become New Labour, that they could have won in 1997 and even won three? Well, let's go back through that in its various stages. Uh, First, um, remember that the modernising Labour group were totally marginalised in the 81 deputy leadership election. Neil, John Silke and others, they abstained. They felt there was no choice between Dennis Healy and uh, Tony Benn. They then, we had the leadership election in 83. Now, it's a very interesting question. If Tony Benn had been elected in Bristol rather than not elected in Bristol and therefore able to be a candidate in the 83 leadership election, uh, what would have happened in that election? Would Neil have won? Would Benn have won? Nobody could... uh, It's very interesting to to see how it would have gone. It's a very close-run thing, what was going to happen. Uh, We were vain because we did believe that we had to modernise Labour somehow at that time to face up to what the country was then rather than what the country had been. The longest suicide note in history, um, the 1983 General Election Manifesto, was simply a throwback to how life had been. And actually, there is a serious message out of all this, which is in all politics, including the politics of today right now, you have to throw yourself forward to what is society like today, what's the economy like, what's society like today, how are people, how are people in this room living today, and what do political parties have to say to them. And the point about that... 1983 period. It was a contest between the people who said, let's try and make it look at today, rather than the people who said, actually, it was bloody good in 1948. But it comes down, doesn't it, to, to, to people who say that it's not really Labour. And there's, a, there's, sort of a, there's, a, there's an argument at the heart of Labour's soul about what Labour ever really was and is. And to people like Dennis, it's the trade union link is, is what makes the Labour Party Labour. I mean, but do you trade think unions have changed completely. Trade, compared even to when I was young, uh, trade unions were a big force in life. Uh, in the 1979, trade unions were a big force in life in the private sector. Now, they're a force in life only, only in the public sector. Do you think we should it break the link between the party and the unions? Uh, I'm, uh, I really think yes, probably, at the end of the day. Um, I certainly think we shouldn't be as dependent on their money as we are. Uh, I'd, be, I'd like a situation where we had a, an affiliation relationship I don't like the quantity of votes they've got. Mm. You've, you've got now uh, a cabal I'd, of four or five general secretaries who basically determine the votes at every Labour Party conference. I'd throw it all to the constituency representatives and do it on that basis. David Cameron brings this up almost at every Prime Minister's question time. Today. Do you think today. that's something that will cost Labour votes at the next election, our relationship of with course. the unions? Of course, completely. I mean, you've got two problems. Firstly, the trade unions aren't now what the trade unions were. They're about a narrow section of the economy, mainly in the public sector, not in the private sector of the economy. And secondly, the people who are actually leading the unions are a very narrow group of people. So you work for Kinnock, and then coming up to, uh, obviously, Tony Blair taking over. Are you supportive of Tony Blair in the, in the leadership election in '94? Very much so. Very much so. I think, again, it's another interesting election of what might have been. If Brian Gould had still been in, in Parliament at that time, not gone to New Zealand, if Robin Cook had run, you never know quite what would have happened. But I certainly saw Tony as the, as the man for that time. And that, that night in 1997, I mean, the Labour Party had lost four elections. There was a real paranoia around the party. I mean, one of the things that annoys me about Ed Miliband is that he stands there at Prime Minister's Question Time today and he says, oh, I'm glad he's preparing for opposition. 
Because we're going to, you know, this sort of idea that Labour have got the next election in the bag. And that, was, that goes totally against how Tony Blair behaved in the run-up to 97. Don't dare say stuff like that. You know, you look arrogant. We have to earn and win every vote that we're going to get. That's the long bottom and sides of it. To the extent we say to anybody, whoever they are, we've, we think your vote's in the bag, we're dead. People want to believe, and by the way, they should want to believe, mm. that their vote counts and their vote has to be earned. And that is, our, that is the stance that we have to take. So in 1997, did you think Labour were going to win or did you think after four elections you'd never win again? I didn't believe Labour had won until about five in the morning the next morning <laughs> when my count completed in uh, Norwich. Um, nobody believed uh, we'd win by that scale, obviously. I did think we'd probably win, but um, I didn't believe it would actually happen if it happened. Obviously, when you look back at those first few years in government, the, the main criticism of, of Labour was one of spin. Do you, think we, do you think we overspun? We were too obsessed with media management and, and not enough on policy? There are two areas where I think we made big mistakes. Uh, spin and public sector spending. So let me just talk about both of those. We had to spin up to 97. Um, the story I always tell is Bob Hughes, who meant people here may or may not remember, he's a relatively old member of Parliament for Aberdeen, anti-apartheid struggler, shadow transport spokesman, produced in about 1984 a great document about how we try and shift taxation on cars from the uh, MOT to petrol because it would be environmentally beneficial, stop people driving more, etc, etc, etc. Every front page killed him on the economics of it in a t- for what was a green paper in opposition. The media, people should not underestimate, was totally against us. We had to spin. Peter was quite right. Peter Manderson, who I brought in at that time, was absolutely right to operate in that way and quite correct because we had to fight that through. That did not need to be... The, it was, spin was really putting your case as best you could. Mm. We did not need that after the first couple of years of Labour government. We got there, we'd done it, but still the culture was too deep and so we thought we had to control everything and that was a terrible mistake. Same was true on public sector spending. We had to reassure everybody we knew what we were doing. Uh, but then we could, by about 1999 or something like that, have loosened, loosened it to some extent, which would have made a big difference, would have changed the arguments around PFI and done other things in that way. Neil Kinnock obviously had a, a torrid treatment at the hands of the press. When people look at, you know, people say, oh, well, William Hague had a difficult time in the run-up to 2001, or the Tories have a difficult time now. How did that compare? I mean, I, I heard stories about journalists breaking into people's houses and things like they that, did. but they it was an absolute war. In January, two, in January 1992... Uh, Trevor Kavanagh, the political editor of The Sun, asked me to go and talk to Kelvin McKenzie, who was the editor of The Sun, at Wapping. I did what I never, ever did on any other occasion because Neil was so hostile to The Sun. I went to see him without telling Neil. Neil was furious afterwards, but I felt I needed to understand what they were saying. And we had a meeting at Wapping uh, with Kelvin, uh, with Neil Wallace, uh, of much renowned, of Trevor Kavanagh, a whole chunk of people about telling And we had an up-and-down battle and he started it, did Kelvin. He said, I've got these fucking writs. I've got these fucking writs, because we were suing them to stop them publishing lies about us the whole time. Why will you stop? Why, 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 don't, why don't you uh, stop giving us these writs? I said, we'll stop giving you the writs when you stop telling lies about us. At that point, they were knocking on the door. I'm still outraged as I talk about it now. They were banging the door down of Neil's relatives in Wales, in rural Wales, trying to steal photographs of him and all the rest of it. This was these, these papers. They were 
I couldn't. I know you very respectful of language, so they weren't <laughs> nice people. Let's put it like that. Uh, and and uh, we then got to the Sun, what won it, and we went through the whole process, and it was terrible. Neil was utterly abused in that situation in a way that it's laughable to say that people like William Hague or Tory, Tory people had it. We were completely vilified in that approach. And to try and think how we put our case in the best way was important. Now, that led to a big rupture when Tony became leader of the party because Tony decided famously to go and see Murdoch on his island in, uh, in Australia or whatever it was. Neil was very, very upset by that, and I understand that because Neil was still of the view that you just can't deal with these bastards. And Tony was of the view, actually, we swim in a sea of media and we've got to deal with them and we've just got to face up to it. And so he set about trying to do that. I think Tony was right at the end of the day, but I completely understand Neil's anger, I mean, real anger, because he kind of morally, in values terms, thought you can't deal with these people. It's a major issue at the moment, obviously, with Leveson and the, yeah. the party leaders yeah. map to Prime Minister's question time today. To I missed that. Has something happened after the, at the meeting of leaders today? Have we learned anything today since? I, I, I haven't seen it. I before. haven't. No. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure if anyone else has. I haven't heard anything, has there? I don't think there's been a great, no. a great deal uh, hammered out by, by the sounds of things. Um, but where do you stand then on regulation of the press? Do you, think, do you think it should be regulated by the state? I believe that the Code of Conduct, uh, the, the Press Complaints Council uh, Code of Conduct, is basically an OK document. I'd make some changes in it, but basically an OK document. And I think it should be put on a statutory basis, i.e., that they should write their code of conduct, that if people, if they break the code of conduct, uh, people should be able to take legal action against them. Uh, I'm personally motivated. My son was completely maligned in all the papers for a ridiculous incident. He was expelled from school for a day uh, as a result of kicking a football out of a caretaker's hand. It was front page news in the Sun and all the rest of it. Did and he have one hand on the ball or two? I mean, was two. It <laughs> he, was, he was very talented. Uh, <laughs> and um, and he... Uh, uh, and... I spoke to that appalling man. You, uh, you probably you should invite him here if you <laughs> want. You've got worse socks than I have. <laughs> Sir Christopher Meyer, who was then oh, chairman of like the all. press complaints for night, who I cannot stand. I regard him as a hypocritical, unpleasant bastard. Yeah. I said, the press, <laughs> the press, the press, the press, the press complaints, the press complaints commission, uh, of which he chaired, allowed did nothing about this because Christopher was my son was under the age at which he should be doing. There should have been nothing in it. And he simply wouldn't act. And they were the complete poodle of the situation. So I think leaving it to the media and hoping it came out all right in the night is not right. I'm not in favour of heavy statutory intervention. I'm not in favour of making you, for example, the commissioner for the newspapers. Mm. I am in favour of saying that the code of conduct which exists, which is by and large not bad, should have be enforceable in law. You're most famous for being Home Secretary. Um, during a period where counter-terror really was top of the agenda, after 9-11 we were engaged in Iraq, ID cards was something that were deeply divisive. And one of those issues that, almost like Iraq, I find myself in a minority of people that did and, and still support them. They weren't introduced, but they, I think the legislation was introduced while oh, you were home no, secretary. I should have, if I'd only going to ask the question, I would have pulled my ID card out. <laughs> no, joking aside, I have an ID card. Really? That was issued, and there was a small number. I paid my 30 quid for it. And then the bastard Tories came in, they passed legislation, <laughs> saying it wouldn't, and they wouldn't give me my 30 quid back. So I was very outraged. <laughs> <laughs> but I have it, and I, no I, I normally have it with me. But the last couple of years, I, I use it instead of passports at airports and things to just generally make my point. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I've been worried about being shown up. But at a, at a less rhetorical level, I have a whole stream of ID cards here for you if you're into. That's, there's my donor card. I thought you there's meant my driving license. 
There's my uh, bus pass. Blimey. Bus pass. <laughs> There's a political question for you. My banker's card. These are all ID cards of different forms. Yeah. People have ID cards. And people, the reason why people have ID cards, which check, check these things out, are that um, if you want to use the banking system, if you want to uh, get the passes on the bus, you need to identify yourself. And actually, in many, many areas of life, you have to identify yourself. I still think they were the right thing. Uh, they weren't necessarily argued in the best way. It was wrong to argue it as a counter-terrorist thing. Mm. It was a thing that's actually about dealing with identity fraud, which is a very serious issue. But, um, and my, my wife's family is Estonian. If you go to Estonia, you go, and I've, I've done this, I made a film about it for Channel 4, put your laptop on, get your ID card, whip it in to the computer. You can look at exactly what your council tax payments are, what your property payments are, check any record of government that you, about you, because it's a question of... You, you even can buy a ticket on the tram. And if you can only access your laptop through an ID card, no one can check your internet history. No, that's all. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's also true. <laughs> <laughs> jewelry isn't a gift you give just once it's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it blue nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price go to blue and experience the convenience of shopping blue nile the original online jeweler since 1999 that's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So you find yourself as Home Secretary during a period where you know, Blair and Brown were apparently at loggerheads. Did you witness any... Apparently. <laughs> I was trying to catch it. I wanted you to tell me the stories. I mean, did you ever see the pair row? Yes. And how bad was it? Was, was, is, is it fair to say that Gordon was the aggressor and Tony was the victim, or was it more complicated than that? I'm not going to say my heart bleeds for Tony. Tony is not a, a kind of guy. But No, we had some terrible, we had some terrible, terrible... Uh, we had big negotiations. I remember sitting down in a room about funding of schools. We had Tony Gordon... Um, John Prescott and myself, and it was just terrible, a terrible, terrible argument. Finally, t Gordon agreed something, and he just behaved as though Tony didn't exist. It was terrible. Tony, in my opinion, had the illusion that he couldn't lose Gordon, and mm. at some point, in my opinion, he ought to have lost Gordon. Now, you can argue when it should have been and how it was, uh, but the fact is he, was, he thought Gordon was nearer the heart of the party than he, Tony, was. He, Tony could never get over the fact that he was he an interloper, was he a real Labour person, and so on. Whereas Gordon was kind of Mr. Gruff, Scottish, real Labour in, in what's happening. And Tony needed to have had the confidence to say, actually, you know, thank you very much. And he could have done it in a variety of different ways. Gordon is, of course, a massively talented person. I mean, despite my deep hostility to him being leader of the Labour Party, I think he was, was, was a disaster to leader of the Labour Party, and I think it raises vast questions about our capacity to come back. He's nevertheless a fantastically talented person. Um, and so it wasn't wrong to... And he did very well as Chancellor for the first 
you know, five, six, seven years. But actually, he was a flawed man at mm. the level of leadership, and Tony wasn't ready to face that up. So, I mean, you would, you would have meetings then where Gordon would, you know, would be ignorant, would be rude. Uh, what about the people around him, people like Ed Balls and, and Ed Miliband? Do they behave in that way as well? It's an interesting contrast. Ed Miliband was always extremely courteous. Uh, people like me who were seen as Blairites, I hate the phrase, by the way, I don't like Blairites. I think it's a very intellectually lazy phrase, which isn't properly used. But Ed Miliband, uh, especially of me. Would you rather be a Blairista? Uh, uh, Blairista, that's good, that's good, that's good. I, I haven't got the tan. <laughs> but but uh, Ed Miliband was always extremely polite. He was always the person you could talk to properly. It's the reason why he's leader of the Labour Party today. Even people who didn't like Gordon felt that Ed Miliband was somebody you could deal with and uh, talk about things in a proper way. I certainly felt that myself. Uh, Ed Balls was completely different. Ed was much more aggressive in the way he approached things. Uh, a very intelligent man, highly, highly intelligent man, but uh, very aggressive in the way he dealt, dealt with things. And that's, of course, an issue now. Can he turn himself into a more effective person than that? But uh, Ed was very... Ed, uh, unfortunately, Ed, Belie, Ed, Ed Balls believed in brutal politics, and he enjoyed that. Uh, he's tried to change that. He's about pasta parties at various people's houses and so on now. Good luck. <laughs> but the, but, but, but he's, he's, he, that is at core his problem. I've talked to him. I see him a lot. Well, not a lot. I see, I've seen him relatively frequently because he's got the very good judgment to have abandoned your home city, Nottingham, and to become <laughs> a, where, where he was at school, to become a supporter of Norwich City Football Club. And so I see him at the football from time to time. We get on personally. I think he's a, actually a, a very engaging person. But he's got... He's got to address two things. Firstly, he still believes in very crude political approaches, which I think is a big mistake, and um, the idea of dividing lines and so on, which is what mm. Gordon did. And secondly, I don't think he's thought through what he does as shadow chancellor philosophy. You need some dividing lines, don't you? I mean, I'm, I'm no fan of Ed Balls, but you, you, people need to know that there's a clear choice between the parties because once a message becomes nuanced, it becomes harder to understand. I mean, I'm not saying we should necessarily characterise it as cuts versus investment, almost like we did at the last election, but... It's very hard, isn't it, to, to deal with the subtle nature of politics now without saying, with us you'll get this it, or they'll but take but it away. But it's, a, but it's a question of what the dividing line is. If you take the economy, or you can, uh, the fiscal deficit or educational health or whatever it is, is the choice between what the Tories are doing now and we're against it? Or is it a choice between what the Tories are doing now and what we would do in these circumstances? I think it's got to be between what the Tories are doing now and what we would do. Why do I think that? Because I think, as in fact Prime Minister's questions demonstrated again today, if we don't, aren't prepared to talk at all about what we do, I'm not talking about some detailed policy prospectus, but where we are, we're simply not in the game. And we've got to say, you're doing this wrong, um, we would do it in this way. Uh, a good example, and I'm not making a David Miliband versus Ed point here, when Ed Miliband spoke in the welfare reform debate about uh, January, so the second week of January, he tried to say something like, I'm not saying it's necessarily exactly the right policy. We should accept the spending frame for welfare, but our priorities would be different within that. If we say we don't accept the spending frame framework for welfare, we're hardly listened to mm. on that approach at all. So we do need dividing lines. I couldn't agree with you more. But the question is, what are the dividing lines? Is it the dividing line between what they're doing now and we're just against, or the dividing line between what they're doing now and what we would do in these circumstances? 
There's a, there's a crisis, isn't there, at the, the heart of the Labour Party, because some people say there's no need for deficit reduction. The deficit is effectively what we use to bail out the banks. This idea that we turn the taps on and money wasn't wasted is, is phantom, and this is a, a sort of Tory argument. And then there are those that say, actually, although we bailed out the banks, some money was wasted, and I feel that those people in the Labour Party aren't effectively being listened to. I mean, where do you stand on deficit reduction and, and Labour spending? I'm relatively militant. I argued even when I was in Parliament in debates at the time. You, I, it, it may be a tragedy, but we have to have the confidence of the financial markets as a government. You, if you don't, you end up getting completely sidelined. What gives confidence is the idea you're in control of the economy, and the particular definition of that which is most important is the fiscal deficit. So we have to say roughly what is the fiscal deficit we think, and then are we going to approach it by tax cuts or, uh, or spending cuts in the process. Now, my personal view is that we should be increasing taxes more than we are and cutting less than we are. And we should be being specific about cuts. I mean, my cuts examples are Trident, which I would cut. I would also... So you cut Trident? I would myself, yes. Uh, I think it's a complete waste of money. And so I would expect you to be in favour of it? I actually voted against it in Parliament, funny enough. I'd, I've taken over in many areas. I'd, I think the reason why you'd probably expect it to be in favour of it is the big battles of unilateralism in the 80s mm. and us being clear that we, were, we weren't unilateralists. I think it's possible to have nuclear deterrence without having Trident. Uh, now, some people would say that's naive of me or wrong, but I don't think so. Um, you then come to the question of uh, another example I personally would do is motorway tolling compared to what happens in other countries in the world and so on, road charging and so on. So I'm not in, I'm, I, mean, I think we should be spelling out... You'd what increase road charges? Definitely. I mean, I'd, I'd have tolling on motorways and carry it through now. The problem is that hits the, quotes, the squeeze middle. But we're in a dangerous position if we start saying we're not going to do anything about these things. On taxes, I think not only the tax evasion issues, which are enormous, and I don't think we would go down in government, but also some issues of even income tax. Gordon cut income tax by 2p in the pound in his last budget as Chancellor. I'm not at all convinced that putting income tax 2p in the pound up wouldn't be a perfectly sensible thing mm. to do. But anyway, the point is, whatever you think about my particular view, you might say it's right, it's wrong, or whatever, but you should be having a discussion about how you deal with the fiscal deficit in terms of your tax and spending policy, rather than saying the fiscal deficit is not important for us. You should say it's very important for us, we target it in this way, and this is how we try and handle it. One of the areas in which Labour was accused of being right-wing um, fell under your remit for a number of years, which was crime, crime and punishment. Uh, and it was something, I have to admit, that I... Loved. <laughs> Asbos, coppers, tasers. R the lot. I mean, I, you know... I'm this, did you get this from Vernon Coker or from Paddy? <laughs> 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 I don't think Vernon it would have been Coker, from that is Vernon's thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I, I don't understand what's left wing about letting people go unpunished or about letting hard-working people be terrorised in their homes. And, but I was isolated in the... You know, part, some of us are isolated in the Labour Party in saying that. that people say that you're a Tory and... Uh, did it, on, on crime, do you think Labour was, was too tough or not tough enough? Uh, I would say, on balance, not tough enough, but in a way you probably won't agree with. I think we've got, I think we've got far too many people in prison. I think if, you, if there's 80,000 in prison, there's 40,000 who are the really serious criminals who should be in prison for longer. Which group does Chris Hoon fall into? <laughs> Chris, Chris Hoon is in the uh, not very serious crime offence. <laughs> other than being called Chris Hune. <laughs> uh, if, I, if I was back in government, I'd put another piece of legislation in place. Let me be quite honest. I'd say anybody who has a personalised number plate should be subject to 15 years in prison. <laughs> and that, and, and that's, that's the category under which 
I do <laughs> When I discovered, I didn't know the facts of it, obviously. When I discovered he had a bloody personalised number plate on the M11 that night, I thought, well, that tells you who he is uh, and what the state of life is. And I didn't do it that way. <laughs> so you're, you're Home Secretary at a time when uh, defence and, and security was a major issue. There was, a, there was a sense, I think, amongst certain sections of the country, I think it's fair to say those on the left, that the terrorist threat was being exaggerated. Uh, I remember when the tanks were rolled out at Heathrow, people said this was a PR stunt in, intended to frighten people, that the Labour government at the time was trying to scare people into voting for them. I mean, I'm sure you will have seen sensitive information that hasn't been uh, yet released under Freedom of Information, and you, know, you were present, I'm sure, at many briefings, uh, COBRA briefings and all the rest of it. Do you think Tony Blair and the government overstated the terrorist threat in order to scare people? or do you think Not, actually at, all. That Not at all. I mean, it wasn't just the left of the Labour Party. David Davis, uh, the Tory Shadow Home Secretary, took that view too, that it was based on an invented threat, to which the obvious answer is 7-7. Uh, it actually happened. It wasn't just a, a fantasy. Um, now, people can then say, well, we can forget about that somehow and go away, something can come back the other time. Or even worse, some people say we can tolerate 50 people being killed on a tube train mm. because actually it's not really that many people compared to other things that have happened in the past. Uh, so I don't think it was overstated. Um, what I do think is that um, we didn't make the argument sharply enough and clearly enough about these issues. In particular, the key issue about so-called intelligence. Uh, you see it in relation to the Iraq war as well. I supported the Iraq war. I still do. I think it was the right thing to do. I was surprised that we didn't find weapons of mass destruction. Mm. Uh, and the fact, the point about intelligence, and it applies on that and it applies to terrorist threats, is it's very limited. You're trying to find out what you don't know. Mm. And so you have to make assumptions. And that you can decide, actually, we don't know, therefore it probably it's all going to be all right. Or you can decide, we don't know, and it might all go wrong. And you've got to decide where you fall that side of it. And all the discussions about the terrorist threat, all the discussions about uh, weapons of mass destruction and so on, were based on our intelligence agencies trying to understand what was going on. Now, the criticism that's made is they got it wrong. And I think that's not a fair criticism because, by definition, we don't know those things. We have to do our best to try and find out those things. And that's what I really think about all this. We have to prepare ourselves against the expectation that an attack might come. And certainly on terrorism, there's no question. I mean, attacks did happen. There's a whole string of attacks which took place and which were real and which continue to be real. I wasn't Home Secretary when the tanks were sent to Heathrow. Um, it was David was doing that. But I'd never say they were wrong to do it because obviously they genuinely thought something was going to happen here. And the idea that Tony, or in that case David or me or whoever, would have created a theatre around mm. that, or John Reid after I finished as Home Secretary on the um, transatlantic planes, the people would create a theatre out of that for political reasons, is deeply insulting and, in my opinion, completely wrong. Tony Blair obviously has received a significant amount of personal abuse as a result of his uh, decision to go to war with Iraq. People say, mm. and there were Christopher Meyer actually was writing in the, the Telegraph at the weekend, that you know, he'd given assurances to, to George Bush long before he'd put the vote to Parliament. And, uh, he wasn't, and Christopher Meyer was not present at that meeting, by the way. And he, he's, he's inventing that, mm. Christopher Meyer, just for the record. But that does seem to be, I mean, even, to be honest, I mean, maybe I'm just too much of a Blairite, Blairist, or whatever it is. Um, <laughs> Which is it? Be come big <laughs> I don't mind Blair, Blair right. I'm up here. Blair is uh, <laughs> Blair man. <laughs> Super Blair man. <laughs> you got to get your de- you got to get your definitions right. What kind of comedian are you? You can't you can't don't just, ask, mate, can't just mess around. <laughs> on the I don't know to be honest. <laughs> um, well, I think even I'm, t- I'm I not I'm not trying to be unlike Dennis Skinner. By the way, I'm trying to put it in a humorous <laughs> way rather than 
<laughs> but I could forgive him that. I could understand that a political leader could say to another, look, I need to get this through Parliament, but in principle, I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm with you. That doesn't bother me, morally. Morally, I don't think it's an issue. Morally, I'm delighted we got rid of Saddam Hussein. I'm mm. delighted, and, and I also think beyond that, if we hadn't done it, if he'd seen off all the forces of the world, the UN, remember the whole string of ten what is, what resolutions he hadn't honoured and so on, yeah, yeah. he'd still be there and in a very bad situation now. And what the, the opponents of the Iraq war never answer is how do you feel about him still being president of, uh, of Iraq mm. with his sons and all the rest of it in, in that situation. Now, they, what they try and say sometimes is, well, a process of change would have happened. Well, pull the other one yeah. uh, as far as we, we go. So um, I do think it was the right thing to do. I would have thought uh, the question was the actual grounds upon which it happened, which was the existence of weapons of mass destruction. What I'm absolutely certain of is everybody concerned, by the way, not just in the UK, but the, the Russians, the French, everybody else was, they thought there were ma ma weapons of mass destruction there. And certain people can say it was totally invented. Mm. That's the allegation that people make. I simply think that's completely wrong. You remember the, the run-up to the vote where, and I was working for Labour MPs at the time, who would sort of tell us pieces about, you know, being rung up by Tony, the, as you would in any parliamentary vote, you know, the Whip's office doing their job and leading ministers doing their job as well. But it seemed that this one was particularly fraught. We know that uh, Tony Blair had threatened to resign over foundation hospitals and tuition fees and other things, but there was a sense with Iraq that he, had he lost that vote, he genuinely would have gone and that he and the government would have fallen. How, how I much... I don't think that, you know. You don't think that? Uh, I mean, the threat to resign, nobody actually threatens to resign. I mean, I was very much involved in the tuition fee issue which happened the day after the Butler, uh, the Butler, the day before the Butler report. Mm. Um, in a sense, the trick, if you're a political leader in those circumstances, to let it be believed that you might resign without ever saying that you will resign because there are people who vote differently on that basis. But I don't think that, even if he lost the Iraq vote, I don't think he'd have resigned. How much... I mean, he, he aged tremendously in office, but in terms of the pressure of that particular situation, did you see it affect his behaviour behind the scenes? Was he, was he nervous? Was he stressed? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, very nervous, very stressed. Um, you're dealing with enormous things. And one of the things I dislike about the, the, the discussion about Tony, I, I like Tony, I was proud to be in his government, I think there are many mistakes which I won't go through, not least sacking me, but that's the, the way that life goes. Um, but uh, uh, I still see him from time to time, I like him and I respect him, and I think it's sad that he can't play his full part in our national life in the way that it mm. should be. But he was very, very, very uh, tense about these things. And the idea that he was, an un which some people argue, that he was some kind of unfeeling automaton who went down this process, and I'm, you know, I'm going to be a warmonger or whatever it is, mm. uh, I think is totally not him. He's a very, very personal person. He's a very human person. And of course he was deeply both upset by what was going on, engaged in it, but he also thought, I think rightly, that he was Prime Minister and his job was to try and do what he thought was best for the country in those circumstances. Now, people are entitled to say, well, it wasn't best for the country. It was the wrong thing to do. That's an OK debate to have. But the idea that somehow he didn't care about it or he's doing it for his own political ambition or whatever, I really think is wrong. He's only, the only extent to which the political ambition point is true is he was absolutely focused all the time on winning the next general election for Labour, and he was always very doubtful about our capacity to do it, mm. despite the enormous parliamentary majority we have. Too doubtful, I would say. What about his, his proximity to George W. Bush? Because I talked to some people in the Labour Party and they're absolutely divided. Some people say the guy was an absolute hillbilly. He was 
he was thick. Blair should never have allowed, to, you know, allowed himself to get as close as he did to him. And other people say, actually, he was far more intelligent than people give him credit for, that he was very fluent, uh, almost intellectual, that he was, he was good company, and that, actually, the caricature didn't fit the private man. I mean, did you ever meet him, and what was, what I was your impression? I never met Bush. I did meet uh, Ronald Reagan, funny enough. Um, and I think there was a tendency on the liberal left, liberal European left, to be contemptuous of these kinds of politicians. Mm. They were happy with American politicians who were based in the Northeast, Massachusetts and so on. Uh, the Kennedys, uh, Kerry now today, who's the uh, Secretary of State. And they were not trust. They, had, they, they simply didn't comprehend people coming from Texas or, in the case of Reagan, from California. And they thought they were stupid and below our, your, yours and my intellectual caliber. I think this was completely wrong. Reagan had an unbelievable ability to communicate with the American people. Mm. I think George Bush, Bush did too. I didn't meet him, but those people who did meet him said he was very engaged in, in the process, intelligent, relaxed, and easy. Uh, Tony was far closer to Bill Clinton and Al Gore, mm. uh, far, far closer, and worked with them much more closely. But I think he would say, probably, I'm not quite sure about this, that he found George W. Bush easier to deal with in many ways as a person than he did Clinton as a president. And certainly Al Gore... Uh, who should never have lost the election which mm. allowed uh, George W. Bush to come in, the, the hanging Chad election, and it was bad campaigning and bad politics by Al Gore, uh, was not the kind of person you could deal with. Now, Tony had the view, which any prime minister should have, that you've got to deal with the people who are running the other countries you've got to deal with, and he did that. Uh, and George W. Bush was the president, there we go, so you have to deal with it. I also think he then came to like George W. Bush and found a joshing along relationship with him Worst of all, in that moment, which shortly before Tony was pushed out, uh, of Yo Blair that, yeah. uh, that, that George W. Bush did, which I think was just one of those jokes you do between people, but it got seen as him being humiliated by, uh, by George W. Bush. Um, you must ask Jack. I mean, Jack's memoirs on this are very interesting about the way in which it worked with Colin, pa Colin Powell mm. and with uh, with George W. Bush. But I think that. Tony thought he had to work with them, and he thought it was better to be inside uh, trying to influence it rather than not. Was that a misjudgment? I still think not really, uh, but many people would say yes. When you reflect on your time in office, uh, obviously you uh, left Cabinet after... Well, there was, it was a difficult period, wasn't it, because there was the foreign prisoners situation where uh, about 1,000 foreign prisoners had been released but not deported. Uh, you offered your resignation. Tony Blair turned you down. And then there was a reshuffle in which you then left. I mean, did, it must have been very um, reassuring to have the support of the Prime Minister at what was during a difficult period, <laughs> initially. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> but then, you, you know, a month later, pretty much you're out of office. I mean, do you bear him any personal animosity towards that? Do you think he could have handled it better? Could he have handled it better? Most certainly. <laughs> do I bear him personal animosity? No. Uh, as I said, I was proud to be in his government. I think he made a lot of mistakes, including on that occasion. When he asked me to be Home Secretary in 2005 after the election, I'd been Home Secretary for about seven or eight months before the election. I said, Tony, I would thank you for offering me. I would like to do it. But there's an enormous amount of stuff that has to be done uh, on, um, in the Home Office. Please can I ask that despite the ups and downs that there will be, and mm. there will be, I don't know what they'll be about, you give me the uh, period while you're still in office as Prime Minister to try and sort out what I have to do. At the party conference that year in 2005, I set out what I thought had to be done. It was in policing, it was in criminal justice, it was in migration and so on. 
And my only real sadness was that he wasn't ready to let me do that. Mm. The foreign prisoners thing arose because I had set about the process of, I personally raised the issue of foreign prisoners with the select committee, went through it. There were problems that occurred as a result. If I had never raised it, it would never have been there. Um, and I felt it was something that if you're trying to pick up the stones and look what's underneath, that's what you've got to do if you're reforming Home Secretary. And I think he should have had the confidence to stick with it. He thought it, I was very politically damaging to the government. And he was right in a sense, mm. though uh, there were some other issues going on at the time which weren't quite as sharp. Um, and I regret very much he, that I wasn't allowed to continue doing it. But there we are, that's politics. I mean, the main point about politics, you know it very well, why I'm even saying it to you. Uh, politics is full of ups and downs. Uh, it's not got the predictability, for example, of life as a comedian, which it takes you in all kinds of areas. Uh, but the, the fact is, that you, you just take, take the rough with the smooth. That's what you've got to do. How difficult is it, though, to sit there with a Prime Minister who's saying to you... Because he offered you defence, didn't he, actually? Yeah. And why didn't you say that? I had difficulty... I, I mentioned Trident earlier. I wasn't convinced... Uh, well, put it, sorry, put it the other way around. If you're going to be Secretary of State for a subject, you've got to just about believe in what you're there for. You're not just a cipher. And I didn't agree with the core element of our defence position. And there were other issues as well where I thought we could be doing more. And I thought that that wasn't really... I'd end up in f false positions where I wasn't really agreeing with what the government position was as the Secretary of State responsible. So when you called in on reshuffle day, did you have any idea? Were you tipped off that you might be moved? Completely. Uh, what had happened was that I'd seen him on the Wednesday after the Prime Minister's questions, uh, where he'd had a hard time because of foreign national prisoners. And I spoke to him in his, chair, in his uh, room behind the uh, Speaker's chair and said um, that I, I hoped he would uh, keep going. And he said, uh, he, he, at that stage, said he, he would keep going with me. And then I started to feel it was slightly uncertain. So I wrote him a letter on the Thursday, uh, which I'd got taken round to see him, which said two things. Firstly, despite the manoeuvres by Gordon and his people, he, Tony, should say that he was staying on till at least 2008 mm. and he was going through that process. I didn't believe we should co cave in to Gordon at that point. Uh, and secondly, if he did, in fact, decide that I shouldn't do the Home Secretary, which on the basis of what he said to me on Wednesday, I thought he wasn't going to decide, then he should know that I'd leave the government at that point. I wasn't going to go through that process. Mm. This was a Thursday before of the polling day. He then asked me to come around that afternoon and I went round immediately and talked to him. And at number 10? At number 10 in his office. Uh, and I then went through late, uh, went late that night up to his flat about 10 or 11 o'clock up that night. And I, he asked me, he told me he wanted me to go. And I said, well, I didn't think he should do that. Uh, and <laughs> Was uh, it couched in those terms or was it more direct? Tony and I always had a very good relationship. Uh, I mean that not in a joking way. There was no raised voices or anything like that. Um, I... Uh, I, I said that I didn't think he should do that. He told me at the second meeting he was going to ask Margaret Beckett to be Foreign Secretary, which I didn't think was a wise choice. Uh, and, the, um, and he then said uh, he, he'd call back, would I change my mind? He didn't just offer me defence, actually. He offered me any job in the Cabinet other than Foreign or Chancellor. And uh, there were people at the time arguing for me to be Foreign, which I didn't know. But both Peter Manderson and Jonathan Powell told me subsequently that they'd argued I should be made Foreign Secretary. Um, but what I was resistant to, uh, and finally the, the, the phone call came the next morning, uh, have I changed my, had I changed my view mm. and I hadn't. Um, he, then he then asked me, uh, he and Sheree asked my wife and myself to go down to Chequers the weekend after. And he said his plan had been to make me Foreign Secretary. Why has his plan been to make me Foreign Secretary? 
And his plan would be to make foreign secretary because he thought that that would mean Gordon's succession was less clear. And he thought, I should think about that. And I said, well, if he thought so highly of me, it might have been nice of him to, to discuss this with me beforehand. <laughs> I would have told him I thought it was a completely batty uh, strategy, <laughs> which I did think. Um, there was a lot of confusion. There was talk that I might go to foreign secretary and so on. What I think was actually going on, though I haven't come, got to the root of it even now, is that they needed a scapegoat, they felt, for the so-called poor results mm. in the local government elections that day, which actually weren't that bad, and that I was to be the scapegoat, and I wasn't ready to, to do that. How does that feel when you, you, even when you're looking at a man like Tony Blair that you respect politically and personally, and you feel perhaps a little behind the scenes that you are being manoeuvred as a scapegoat? Do you feel any sense of betrayal or sadness? Do you leave you know, those encounters with a heavy heart, or are you philosophical about it? Heavy heart is right. Uh, I was very upset about it and concerned about it. Um, I think um, somebody very close to Tony once said to me that when people look at his history, they'll, the, th the conventional view is that he was too much of a spin prime minister. But this person said they thought actually his great failure was in human resources, in personnel mm -hmm. management. And I think that was true both in the civil service and in the cabinet. I think he made a whole string of very bad mistakes and appointments about the way he dealt with things. And what happened to me that reshuffle day was just one of a series of very bad misjudgments. So he was considering putting you in, in foreign to, to block Gordon. I mean, was he almost trying to encourage you there to stand for the leadership in any way? Well, event? he said in terms he thought I could do that. Um, uh, his view was that Foreign Secretary was the nicest job in the Cabinet. Uh, Chancellor was the most powerful job in the Cabinet. And Home Secretary was the most unpleasant job in the Cabinet. <laughs> he told me that. And I said, well, thank you very much. And, uh, <laughs> and that was the process. No, he, did, he said to me in terms he thought I had the capacity to do that. I now think he's said that to a number of people. <laughs> and so I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't feel particularly honoured by his uh, judgment in that area. I d I, the one area in which I'm really very, very, very critical indeed is that he didn't think about the succession at all. Mm. It, what he should have done, whatever else happened, even after 2006, was to say there are a whole chunk of people in the Cabinet who are very capable of being my successor as leader. Um, I'm not going to choose between them. The, I'm going to sort out a proper leadership election in which that happens, and the party will decide who they want in those circumstances. Instead of which, he nailed his uh, colours very much to the Gordon mast all the way through, and I think that was a serious political error. Mm. It is difficult to... Uh, I'm not talking just about the fact it was Gordon, but he shouldn't have nailed his, mast to any, uh, to his, his flag to any mast. Um, the key thing uh, in any job, really, is to try and do what you can to get the succession right, and he didn't get that right. Uh, I don't mean, as I say, I emphasise again, I don't mean that he was wrong about Gordon. He was wrong about Gordon, but I don't, <laughs> mean, I don't mean that. But he should have said there's a number of people who could do this and tried to set up a, a transition process which would have let that take place. So whether Blair thought you could do the job or not, why didn't you run? I thought I'd be completely wiped out and uh, humiliated, really. Um, I very seriously considered it. Uh, I don't think I had enough support. I think I was quite close to it, but not actually enough. And Gordon had operated a regime that was, how should I say, it was about extremely, extremely unpleasant personal politics in a way that nobody else has done in my lifetime in politics. And I think that it, it wouldn't have been a resolved issue even if somebody else had beaten him in the leadership. And I think, in a sense, the party had to go through the experience of Gordon. My, my regret was that it happened to... It's striking. I've just started... I'm just reading a couple of biographies. i just finished Jack's... Just reading Alistair Darling's now. Yeah, very good. Both Jack and Alistair uh, were... 
I wouldn't say they were intimates of Gordon, they weren't, but they became very close to Gordon over a long period of time. Yet both of them in their books are excoriating mm. about what he did as Prime Minister. It's quite striking. What's odd is, throughout that whole period when Gordon was Chancellor, and even when he was Prime Minister, and I was working for the party at, at times, was we were told that actually he was OK and that you know all these things were brushed under the carpet. It wasn't until he became Prime Minister that this... You know, obviously, we'd heard rumblings about it in, in the papers and in, in the, most notably in Andrew Rawnsley's books. But the party was almost pretending that actually he's OK, this is all just rumours. And then it exploded when he became Prime Minister because then all these issues came to the fore and you, know, you had rumours about the way he treated his staff and the, the way he treated other people. I mean, what did you see with your own eyes when you talk about the sort of personal politics? I mean, how did it manifest itself? For me, there was only one question. The reason I didn't nominate him as uh, leader of the party, which, despite a lot of pressure from people, oh, make it unanimous, all the rest of it. Uh, I didn't think he had the capacity to lead the party, let alone to be prime minister. Now, question, what is the capacity that you need? It is about a sense of what you're trying to do. It is about a sense of building a team. It is about a sense of working together. And I just didn't think, and I talked to him a lot, that he had the capacity to do that. Um, Tony was less hostile, funny enough. I remember seeing Gordon in his hotel room at the 2005 party conference. And I, I spoke to him with Tony's authority. Uh, and I said, look, you've got to set out why you want to be prime minister, what you will do as prime minister, what the direction you're taking the country in. And, you know, that will deal with all the point. Every, people like me think you haven't got any idea what you want to do, but actually you've got to say what you want to do. And, he mm. said, and t that was Tony's view. And... T and he said, it's too early, you can't do that. And then at each point, running for the leadership election, then as Prime Minister and so on, he never set out what he was about to do. His conglomeration of issues when he became Prime Minister were all about why he wasn't, uh, why he wasn't Tony, not about wha what he was. And that fits into the overall big picture. My big picture of British politics is of great long cycles from 50 to 64, 64 to 79, 79 to 97, 97 mm. to 2010. And that's the kind of timescale in which things change. The only exception was the 64-79 um, period where Wilson lost the election in 1970, so there was a Tory interregnum. But as you get to the end of a 13 years or an 18 years or whatever, you have to be able to say, we're not about rectifying the problems of the past, we're about what will we do for the country in the future. And for Labour, after 97... That meant by the time we got to about two, 2001, we got elected because people said we had to continue doing the job. 2005, we just about kept the show on the road with that still being there. But for 2010, we had to say, this is what we've been doing. This, whatever it is, is what we are going to do, what we're offering to the people of Britain uh, if we were to be elected again. Otherwise, people would say, well, you've had your run. Let's let the other lot have a go. And we simply completely failed to do that. Um, and so we looked tired. We didn't have an offer. I think the big reason why we lost the 2010 election was we didn't have that sense of what we would do for the country. And in fact, the key election message was don't vote for the Tories, don't let the Tories in. Mm. And that is not enough. You can't have just the negative message. You've got to say positively, this is what we want to do. And it was Gordon's job as the person succeeding Tony as the leader to set out that sense. And the reason I didn't think he was up to it is I didn't think he had the capacity to do that. Whatever his other strengths, which were real... He didn't have the capacity to do that, and I think that's what was demonstrated by events. So looking ahead to the next election then, I mean, people would say that Ed Miliband might be the next Prime Minister. Do you think he'd be a good Prime Minister? Uh, probably. Um, I, but I think he's got the same question that I'm saying now. He has to set out a vision as to why should he vote Labour in 2015. And at the moment, we're not there. Um, I, I felt we didn't have the debate properly after 2010. 
There were three very straightforward questions. Why did we lose? How do we oppose? How do we win? They're simple questions, but they have difficult answers. And we needed to think that through, and we haven't done it. The how do we oppose is the conversation we had earlier about dividing lines. Are we simply saying there are a load of bollocks, we're the opposition? Or are we saying, actually, what we should be doing on this situation is this, which compares with where the Tories are, um, and which is what we should be doing? How do we win? It's about being clear how we'd govern the country in each of the areas we're talking about, the economy and so on. I would say that requires a proper analysis of where we've been. So we, what we should say is from 1997-2010 in each area, uh, health, education, home, the economy, this is what we hope to do, this is what we achieved, this is where we failed, the reasons why we failed were circumstances changed, we got an analysis wrong, whatever it might be. What we've learned from this is what we would do in government next time is this, uh, yeah. to deal with this situation. Some kind of story like that. I don't see anything like that in any of the areas. It's particularly important in the economic area because the Tories have categorically won the argument we ran the economy uselessly, which I don't think is a fair picture, by the way, at all. I think there are many positive aspects of the way we ran the economy. Do you think we need to try and, 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 and go back and fight that argument, or do we just let that lie? That's can't, in the past now. We can't it, fight the last election. Well, you, you, you saw David Cameron at Prime Minister's questions today. You can't let it lie. They will return to that at the next election campaign through and through and through, on the economy in particular. And we can't just... I mean, I think Ed Miliband... I, I, I voted for David, though, only just at the end because I thought David hadn't been strong enough in certain respects previously. But I wasn't hostile to Ed. Mm. I became hostile to him after his conference speech in 2010 because I thought that it was no good just to say the last government was a load of rubbish. Yeah. Uh, the last government made many mistakes and we should categorise them and set it out. But just saying it was a load of rubbish is not the right position to take. He's now modified his position. I thought the One Nation idea is a worthwhile one to try and bring through in what we say and do. But you've got to say, if we want to build One Nation, to take that rhetorical point, well, how are we going to do it? We can't just say we want One Nation. The point about politicians and people who, who aspire to be in government would say this, whatever it is, is the way we achieve One Nation. OK, we'll take some questions to the audience. Uh, do put your hand up if you'd like to ask Charles Clark a question. Do we have any? Yes, mate, what's your name? I think, I think the only thing you have to do, this, what the process I'm describing, in my opinion, hasn't happened and could happen. It is to say, these are the things we did right, those are the things we did wrong. To take a, a right, we invested massively in our public services and schools, hospitals and so on. This was a massive positive thing that happened, which wouldn't have happened if Labour hadn't been there. I think we actually ran the economy pretty well up till about 2007, and then we let it go. Now, what... The currently Ed Balls and Ed Miliband are doing is saying we'll take the criticism, we'll say we didn't regulate the, the banks enough, which is true but they think that's enough, it's not enough you've got to have a full story from which you on your doorstep in Watford are able to say these are the points and, and I think most electors, I don't know how you found it on the doorstep, but people I speak to anyway if you say honestly we got some things wrong but we got a lot right and what we're going to do to put right what we did wrong people are ready to listen to the argument I know that's a long argument, not just a doorstep exchange but I think the same is true on migration. It's not true. 
what um, Ed Miliband in the PPB last week and Yvette saying that the last Labour government didn't care about migration. It's a completely ridiculous comment. Anybody who's ever met Tony Blair would know that was completely not the case. Now, did we make mistakes? Well, there's a discussion to be had about what mistakes we did and what, mi what we did do and didn't do and so on. But I think in each of these areas, we need to get a story, and it should be a true story, about what we did right and what we did wrong. Take a completely different example, social exclusion. From 97 onwards, we set social exclusion as the target of our policy, rightly so. What was our success or failure on social exclusion after 13 years? It's a good question. I've not really analysed it myself. But where did we succeed? Where did we fail? Who still was excluded? Who wasn't excluded? The fact that after 13 years we hadn't eliminated social exclusion, 13 years is a long time, did we get it wrong? Was our analysis wrong? Had we not understood some things happening? That's the kind of discussion that needs to take place. And I'd say in each area, that kind of discussion needs to happen. And without that, you're then on the doorstep saying, well, we like the mansion tax and we want to get rid of the 10p rate, or whatever the line of the day is when it comes out. But you aren't able to engage with your, uh, the people you're canvassing on a serious way. Now, we all know in the you know, 45 seconds on the doorstep, you can't deal with everything I've just said. But actually, I think people generally, I, I, I respect people, and I think people want to get engaged in a serious discussion about this. I still believe, and I may be naive to say it, that people want to feel Labour is the, is the right thing for them. In somewhere like Watford, a very hard seat, Claire Ward's a good MP in my opinion, um, that it was, a, it was a situation where you have to make the case to those people for us. You can't just assume that anti-Tory will take us in. We've got to say we've got to win, as I'm sure you're actually trying to do, every vote for those people and to win those people's votes it's not because of a particular policy that's like this or because Ed Miliband's got a nice smile or whatever it might happen to be it's actually that we've got a story to tell about what we did that was good what we've learnt about what went wrong and how we're going to put it right if they give us the power to do so any more questions yes mate um, you were in the 1990s you worked with Paddy Ashdown on uh, Lib Lab cooperation, and then you were quite a hardline uh, Home Secretary in the 2000s. How do you think about the idea of a Lib Lab coalition with the, uh, Tim Farron as a potential Home Secretary? How do you feel about that? Uh, pretty strange. I, uh, <laughs> I've had to deal with Lib Dem Shadow Home Secretaries. The first one was Nick Clegg, who was appointed when I was Home Secretary, and I invited him up for a sandwich lunch in my office. And I realised, basically, without being rude about Nick Clegg, who's a fine man, of course, he knew nothing about nothing. <laughs> uh, then it was Chris Hoon later on, and we know his approach to law and order. Um, joke aside, what I, what I really think is that um, it wasn't actually with Paddy Ashdown I worked. I worked with Charles Kennedy, and I think that the, uh, we have to be ready in the circumstances of a hung parliament, and you can't predict it, to work with whoever we have to work with in order to be able to deliver our policy programme. And there are large sections of the Lib Dems with whom we could easily work on core issues. I wasn't in favour of trying to make that work in 2010, A, because the arithmetic didn't really stack up in the Parliament, it would have been too difficult, and B, because I think that Gordon's presence there made it very difficult to see a way through. If he, In my opinion, he should have resigned on the Friday morning and asked the Cabinet that afternoon to for, uh, select a new Labour leader to conduct the negotiations, and that might have made it more possible. But anyway, but we should be ready to talk about that. Um, something like ID cards, I'm in favour of, 
but it's not an issue of principle. So if it was a price of forming a government with the, uh, with the Lib Dems, fine on ID cards, uh, if you see what I mean. And I think you can go through all the policy areas and see what really you can do and what you cannot do. And that's the way to approach it, and we should stand ready for it. I don't think, actually, that having a supply day resolution in Parliament has happened this week on mansion tax in an effort to try and embarrass the Lib Dems. I don't think that's a clever way of going about it. I think we should be talking in a more substantive way about m what might be the policy agenda w with on which we might be able, in the circumstances arose, to cooperate with the Lib Dems. Now, I just think it's elementary that that's what you have to do in these circumstances because... Um, I don't know what's going to happen in the next election, but it must at least be a possibility that the question of the Labour-Lib Dem relationship will be a factor in determining what government uh, emerges from the next election. And we shouldn't be going into that situation uh, on the basis of insults and all the rest of it. We should be going into a ba on, on a basis of how could we work together in those circumstances. Now, maybe it couldn't happen, but uh, I don't think we should rule it out from the outset. Therefore, we should prepare for it. OK, is there anyone on the balcony that would like to ask a question? Yes, just one more. You, mate. In, uh, from 1997 onwards, I was a Labour Party activist and very proud to be so. Uh, however, last week I went to see The Spirit of 45 by Ken Loach and couldn't help but feel a sense of jealousy that as when radical governments come, the 1945 government will always outstrip the 1997 government. Uh, I just wonder what your thoughts were on that. And secondly, can you stop Norwich City <laughs> signing Leeds United's finest players? <laughs> Well, the answer, the answer on the second is no, and I'm delighted to have failed to do so. I'm obviously sad that Leeds has gone right down the way it is. I'd love to see Leeds back. I remember the days of, uh, of uh, Bremner and uh, Hunter and the cool football which they played at that time very, very warmly. The all-white all -white strip with Don Revy and what they needed got the treble and didn't. Uh, and I'm desolated. There's no other word for it. Desolated <laughs> about the fact they're below Norwich in the league. And in fact, not just below Norwich in the league, but a very long way below Norwich in the league. <laughs> but I admire the judgment of former Leeds United players who've decided that Norwich is the place to play rather than Leeds. And they've come to us, I think, voluntarily uh, and operated. But whether you look at um, Johnny House and Snodgrass, whoever, they are very good. This is the non-footballers amongst you. Uh, Norwich is uh, equal tenth in the Premiership at the moment. And Leeds, what, where's Leeds at the moment in the Championship? Legends, miles above you. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that, take, that, that takes me back to your first question because in the 1945 Labour government in legend status, uh, it was great, but it doesn't really tell us what to do in 2015. Um, I, haven't, I saw Ken Loach interviewed on Newsnight the other night. I haven't seen the film yet. I'm Mark Ken Loach um, for many different reasons. But the bit I saw on, where he was being interviewed with Tristram Hunt on Newsnight last night or the night before, I think it was. Um, and I didn't really... Um, I was born in 1950. I think throwing back to 1945 and saying that's how it should be is simply not what politics is about. Politics, at the end of the day, is saying, what's the society look like now? I don't need to go through the changes since 45, but they are so enormous you can't believe them. On the radical tag, actually, I think Tony Blair's government, certainly 1970-2001, has quite a reasonable record to argue on the radical tag, um, both in constitutional reform but also in some other areas. The big change since 1945 is in the economic area, where from 1945 until whenever, uh, a country could set its own economic policy reasonably independently. You did have exchange rate controls. You could operate things in different ways. By the time we came to 97, 
you're operating in a world economy in a completely different way. And the idea of getting back to siege economy a la Tony Benn just doesn't add up to me. I don't think you can do it in the modern world economy. We are a globalised economy, like it or not. And that's how, what we have to deal with. In 45, that wasn't the case. And so the, ec the, the economic climate is completely different. And that's what leads to issues about nationalised industries and how they operate in different ways. So I, I, I agree with you, of course, about the power of the 45 government. And though I haven't seen Ken Loach's film, based on the discussion between Ken and, um, and Tristram on the uh, news night, I felt it was seemed to be romantic in character rather than anything else. I remember Michael Foote, when he was alive, talking about, in his words, the great days of the war, which may seem a strange thing to say, but what he's referring to was the sense of common purpose, camaraderie, and so on, that the war generated in people, that they were fighting together to do something. And 45 uh, to 51 took that forward, took that idea forward into creating the peace. Um, we haven't had anything, I'm glad to say, like the Second World War since. And so that camaraderie, that common purpose, is not there in the same way. The great collective institutions, the trade unions, places of work, and so on, aren't there in the same kind of way. So it's just a different world. So well, yes, but you've got to ask yourself what those principles are. And, I mean, John, John Prescott's famous phrase was uh, traditional values in a modern setting. And, the, of course, the principles remain, and the principles are absolutely core. Uh, I would say, if you take, for example, human rights, an area I was very familiar with, the entrenchment of human rights, as in when the European Convention of Human Rights was signed in whatever it was, 1948, being taken through, or maybe 51, taken through to the Human Rights Act being put into Brit British law by the Labour government, that is a set of principles which are quite important. And I, of course, agree with uh, common principles and the charge that New Labour in general, Tony Blair in particular, me in particular, didn't have principles. I also think is not true, and I also think is insulting. But I think let's have a proper discussion about what principles we're actually talking about. We're say, what are the principles that we're applying? Because, of course, a Labour government is about applying principles. The question is, what are those principles, and how do they relate to the modern world in which we live? Charles, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, that's, that's all for tonight. We'll be back uh, in April on the 17th with a special guest yet to be announced. We'll also have a show in May, and then in June uh, we have Jack Straw joining us. Uh, you can, we'll be podcasting the show so you can download it on iTunes and tweet it and Facebook it and tell all your mates about it. Thank you all very much uh, for coming down. I hope you've enjoyed uh, this evening, and please show your appreciation for Mr Charles Clark. Thank you. Well, there you go. Charles Clark, ladies and gentlemen. What an absolute ledge. Charming fella. Insightful. Just great to hear those stories about someone who's really been there at the centre of it, as well as hear his opinions on Tony Benn as well. Um, thanks to all of you that have been down to the show so far. There's a real special atmosphere down there at the St James Theatre in Victoria. It's just down the road from Parliament, and there's something about the lighting of the room and the way that it's set out that lends itself to politics. It's got a sort of ghostly quality to it. Uh, we've got some great guests coming up in the future. On Wednesday the 17th of April, we've got Lembit Opik, the former Liberal Democrat MP. He'll certainly be very entertaining. He's the first Liberal Democrat we've had on the show as well. Then on the 15th of May, very excited about Tim Lawton, who's a Conservative MP, and he'll be the first guest I've had that's actually served as a minister in the coalition. He was an education minister under Michael Gove, but was moved in a reshuffle. And then on the 12th of June, the former Home Secretary, Foreign Secretary and Justice Secretary, Mr Jack Straw. Tickets are available on the website, www.stjamestheatre.co.uk. And I'm sorry to announce that Dennis Skinner still has no plans to appear on the show. Until next time, ta-da! Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.